Well, throughout major sections of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has warned us about our inclination to be satisfied for and to, to be satisfied for appearances, especially when it comes to appearing righteous. And we saw in this series on the Sermon on the Mount that oftentimes Jesus warned us not to settle for appearing righteous as we pursue God's righteousness. However, there are times in life when people are interested to know the real stuff, no matter how much it hurts. For example, when people are diagnosed with cancer, one of the first things they want to do is to get a second opinion. Why? To make sure that they got a real picture of what's happening in their body. Now, of course, people wish that the second opinion would be different than the first opinion. But in getting a second opinion, patients are ultimately interested to find the truth. It would be no help to the patient in going to a doctor that would tell them only what they want to hear. After being suspected of cancer, the patient's greatest desire is to know the truth, even if that news is hard to hear. Finding a disease early is way better than finding it too late. Friends, when dealing with medical diagnosis, all of us are interested to find the truth, even the truth we don't want to hear. Because in the long run, it will do us better. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, we should desire no less. We should want to know the true conditions of our souls, even when the news we hear is not what we want to hear. We should be weary, dear friends, of consulting spiritual doctors who tell us only what we want to hear. I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus was not one of them. As he finished the Sermon on the Mount, he ends the sermon with what I call three diagnosis tests. Three pictures we ought to apply to ourselves and see if we are true followers of Christ. Now let me tell you this morning, for some people, applying this test may bring them bad news. A news they are not ready to hear. Perhaps the news they're not willing to hear. But just as we do not get upset at a doctor who delivers the diagnosis of cancer, I pray, I pray that you would, if you get the bad news this morning, you would take it seriously enough to treat it and not dismiss it. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're hearing, even if it's a bad news that you're hearing today, if you're hearing this news today, it is not too late for you to treat it. I entitled this message, the message uh, this morning, The Assurance of the Kingdom. The Assurance of the Kingdom. How do we know we are truly part of the kingdom of God? Well, three images, three tests that are administrated, uh, administered by the great physician of our souls, Jesus Christ. I encourage you to open scripture to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be reading from verse 13 to verse 29. And for those of you who are using a Bible that is provided in the church in front of you, you may find this passage on page 840. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Let's prepare our hearts, the reading of God's Word. Here's the Lord's word. Enter through the narrow gate. 
For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for those false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Amen. Well, this was our, our word from the Lord for our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, our prayer this morning is that your word, which is living and active, and sharper than any double-edged sword would pierce our hearts. We pray that your word would judge the thoughts and inner intentions of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would speak to us plainly and clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, for those of you who are visiting us this morning for the first time, we have been through the Sermon on the Mount. For nine weeks, we have covered and explained each section of the sermon. And finally, we get to the end of it. Today is the conclusion of the sermon. As Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving us three images that run for us like three diagnosis tests. And I want you to run these tests on your life today. I want you to let these tests reveal where you are today. The test of two gates and two paths, that's the first test. The test of two trees and two kinds of fruit, that's the second test. And the test of two builders and two homes, that's the third test. I encourage you, let's run each of these tests on our own lives this morning. Let's look at the first test. The test of two gates and two paths, verses 13 and 14 in the passage we've read. And Jesus presents the first illustration of two gates and two paths by giving an interesting command. Look at the command Jesus gives, verse 13. 
enter through the narrow gate. Why this command? Why is this the way Jesus begins his conclusion on the Sermon on the Mount? He has taught for two chapters. And now as he's concluding the sermon, he says, enter through the narrow gate. Why a narrow gate? Well, if we keep reading the verse, Jesus gives us a few reasons. Because the wide gate and the wide path leads to destruction. And Jesus warns us not to take that route. Now, I have to tell you, we in Texas have a saying. Everything is big in Texas. We like big highways. We like plenty of access roads. We like large places. We like large homes. We like large properties with lots of acreage, with plenty of room for everyone. Everything is big in Texas. But friends, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we have to go against our cultural fabric. We must go against the Texan value of choosing the wide path and the wide door. I know it's hard for some of you to hear this. Because you were born a Texan. You were born in a wide land, on wide paths. Friends, let me remind you, all of us were born on a wide path. You don't have to be born in Texas to be born on a wide path. Jesus is calling his disciples to take the narrow path, which is access through a narrow gate. And I looked up this word. The word used to describe the narrow path is a word that also means troublesome, difficult. In other words, it's not an easy path. It's not a comfortable path. But at least it leads to life. Friends, the picture Jesus is painting here is startling. It is as if prior to knowing Christ, you were driving on a multi-lane highway, a very wide highway with lots of spaces for everyone. Actually, it's a highway you were born on. You grew up on it. You got used to it. You like it. All your friends are on it. All your family members are on it. All the family traditions have been built on it. But when you come to know Christ, it's like you get off that highway and start driving on a one-lane, one-way street with no shoulders and no U-turns. Now think honestly for a moment. Which one you, would you prefer to drive on? Which one would you prefer to drive on when it's night? Which one would you prefer to drive on when it's rainy? Now, if I were preaching this me message up in, 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 in the northern states, in Ohio, I would say, which one would you like to drive on if it's snow? The narrow path is always more dangerous. It's always easier to take the, the wide path. But friends, as nice of a ride you would have on the highway, Jesus is telling us it leads to destruction. And as difficult as a narrow path is, Jesus tells us it leads to life. And just like with any journey we take, what makes a drive worthwhile is the destination. How sad, however, that when it comes to our spiritual lives, many people don't care about the destination as long as they're enjoying the ride. Jesus, however, gives us not only the picture of a narrow path, but a narrow gate. 
Now, this inclusion of a narrow gate as the entrance into the narrow path has significant implications for our evangelism, dear friends. Some people preach the gospel of salvation, but by, taking on, by talking only about the things people will get if they accept Jesus in their life. They promise them joy, peace, healing, blessings, abundance of life. You get all these if you come to Jesus. And something else, you get eternal life. And we tell them that by praying the sinner's prayer, we tell them that by getting baptized, and by starting coming to church, they are saved and they should never doubt their salvation. Friends, after a while, after they've been in church, we start telling them some other stuff. Well, you know that Christian life, we told you it's fun, it's, it's great, it's joyful, it's peaceful. Yeah, but it has some hard stuff once in a while. And actually, the hard stuff gets bigger and bigger as you move on in your Christian life. And actually, it's pretty difficult. And actually, you start having to obey God's Word because that's what it says. And if, you're, if you don't obey, you're not a good Christian. And if you don't obey, you're not going to bear fruit. I mean, we know you're a Christian, but you've got to start doing all these other things also. And some people who were bought into that, they say, that's not what I signed up for. You didn't tell me that at the beginning. It's not surprising why many who profess at one point in their lives, especially if they were young, they profess Christ, but because they were given just the positive things of the Christian message and not the full package, when the hard stuff comes, they start giving up. They back out. They say, that's not exactly what I signed up for. Friends, when such new converts hear about the cost of following Jesus, they really think, twice about what they got into. And they would probably prefer just to keep their ticket to heaven, and we would keep telling them, yes, you're saved. Yes, you're saved. You'll go to heaven because you confessed. But the reality is that for such people, for such converts, the cost of being a Christian is way higher than what they're willing to pay. Friends, it's as if we would tell them in the story of Jesus, in the image of Jesus, it's as if we would tell them Wide is the gate. And once you enter, that wide path slowly starts to narrow. And really, the narrow gate is all the way at the end of your life when you get to heaven. But it's just a slow transition. It's a wide gate on a wide path that slowly starts to narrow down. Friends, this is not the picture Jesus gave. Jesus said, narrow is the gate. And he's knocking, not talking about the gate at the end of the path. He's talking about the gate at the beginning of the path. Friends, entrance is into the kingdom of heaven is through a narrow gate, according to Jesus. And the cost of getting on the narrow path must be explicitly stated. Now, let me clarify, the gospel is free, but it's not cheap. It is so valuable, the gospel is so valuable that our entire lives are worth nothing in comparison to it. The gospel is free, but following Christ will cost us our old lives. And we need to tell people that entrance into the kingdom is through a narrow gate. Through an uncomfortable gate. We surrender ourselves at the door. We repent of our sins and turn to Christ in faith. Our friends, this picture of a narrow gate should not surprise us. Do you remember how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount? The first value of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
To turn to God in repentance and faith means that we recognize our spiritual and moral bankruptcy. We have nothing to bring to God but our bankrupt souls. And we check our rights at the gate. We can't take him in. A friend, if you're a Christian this morning, let me ask you, have you come to Christ through the narrow gate? When you were presented the gospel, did someone tell you that following Jesus will cost you your life? We are exchanging our life for His. Did someone tell you that? Not only at the moment of conversion, but from that moment until the end of our lives. Because of this exchange, Christ has authority to tell us how to live under His reign. Did someone tell you about the cost? If the answer is no, friend, my dear Christian friend, my dear brother or sister, Jesus wants you to correct this impression. And I would love to talk to you more about it. You may be a Christian this morning and have gotten on the path through a, a different kind of door. And I want to talk to you about that. But friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, and you are listening to these words, and you may rightly wonder, why would anyone choose a narrow gate and a narrow path? This talk about narrow stuff in church makes you uncomfortable. And you say, you guys are not advertising Christianity the right way. No one would, sell for, no one would buy your product if you talk about the narrow path and the narrow gate. Why would anyone choose the narrow path and narrow gate? My dear friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, here's why we want to tell you this. Here's why anyone should choose the narrow path and the narrow gate. Because it leads to life. And because a wide gate and a wide path leads to destruction. And for us, that's a good enough reason to try to convince the world, a lost world, they need to accept Jesus Christ. But friends, if you want a smoother ride on the white path, feel free. But Jesus is warning you to get off because it leads you to destruction. And if you would like to know more about how you can enter through the narrow gate, I'll be in the hallway at the end of the service and I would love to talk to you and about how you can exit from the highway on a one-way narrow path that leads to life. That's the picture Jesus gives us. And there's something somber about this picture as well. It's not just a narrow path and the narrow gate. But look at what Jesus says in these verses. Compared to the wide path on which there are many travelers, the narrow path is traveled by few. Did you catch that? As D.A. Carson, one of the professors of New Testament theology, once observed, the narrow path wins few popularity contests. That means that some of your friends may not be on the narrow path. That means that some of your family members may not be on the narrow path. They may still be on the white path. Why? Because that's more popular. We should desire, dear friends, that all people would come to know Christ, but Jesus himself recognized that what he's calling people to do will not be followed by the many masses, by the big masses. Friends, if Jesus was not as optimistic about the whole world coming to saving knowledge of him, why would we try to widen the gate and widen the path so that everyone would come to him? Yes, we can pray for the whole world to come to Christ, but we are called to proclaim Jesus' message that the path he's calling people to follow is narrow and is not populated by the masses. Well, that's the first diagnosis test Jesus gives us. The test of a narrow gate and a narrow path. Let me ask you this morning, where do you find yourself on? On which path do you find yourself on? Through which gate have you entered? The second test that Jesus gives is a test of two trees and two fruits, verses 15 through 20. 
The second picture Jesus gives is triggered by a warning Jesus gives his disciples against false prophets. Look at verse 15. Be aware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Friends, according to Jesus, false prophets have been with us from the time of Jesus. Paul, even the Apostle Paul, gave a same warning when he gave his farewell to the elders in the church of Ephesus. He said in Acts 20, 29-31, Paul said, Know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, he said. Remember that for three years I have never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Why? Because Paul said, false prophets are coming, and there'll be some rising from within you. Now, who are the false prophets? Well, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the false prophet is anyone who does not advocate the narrow path taught by Jesus. False prophets are those who promise life, but through the wide gate and through the wide path. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, false prophets are described in a very interesting way. Here's how Jeremiah describes false prophets in Jeremiah 6, 14. They dress the wound of my people as though it was not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Such prophets preach, but nothing in their preaching fosters poverty of spirit. Nothing in their preaching leads people to repent before God and cry to Him for mercy. They only talk about peace when there's no peace. They only talk about joy when there's no joy. They only talk about security and assurance when there's no security and no assurance. Friends, be aware of false prophets. To illustrate the point, Jesus gives the picture of two trees a good tree and a bad tree. Now, to our human eyes, we may not be able to tell which one is which if we just looked at their shape or if we just looked at how big they are or how strong they are or how sturdy they are. Both trees might have the same appearance. So we cannot make a judgment call on them from mere appearances. until we wait for them to bring fruit. And when they bring out the fruit, that's when we can know who's which. Jesus is so clear about the confidence of examining the fruit that he says twice in this passage, by their fruit you will know them. Look at verse 16 and verse 20. Twice, by their fruit you will know them. Friends, false prophets not only will fail to preach the narrow path, and the narrow gate, but they will also fail to live it. Again, as D.A. Carson once said, for such men, the falseness of their preaching erupts in the disobedience of their lives. Now, why can we have this confidence? Why can we have the confidence that we can know them by their fruits? Well, Jesus says, because a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now, we would like to blur those clear lines. We would like to say that such lines cannot be distinguished so clearly. But how do you know what is good fruit and what is bad fruit, we would say, right? Well, there are a number of texts in Scripture that we could look at. I'll just give you one example. Just point you there. Galatians 5, 16 through 26 is a wonderful 
list of good fruit and bad fruit. You don't have to turn there. Feel free to read that at your own time at home. But that is a wonderful example of good fruit and bad fruit put side by side. Read through it. If any of that characterizes you, find out on which side you are. But in the Sermon on the Mount, the good fruit Jesus is talking about is the conformity to the teaching that Jesus just gave on the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the values that Jesus promoted and taught, such as righteousness, transparent humility, purity, trusting and persistent prayer, obedience to the words of Jesus, truthfulness, love, generosity, rejection of all that is hypocritical. These are some of the clear measures of being and having good fruit. Do you have them? What kind of fruit are you bearing, my friend? What kind of fruit is there in your life? Friends, the fruit we're called to bear is not just so that we would grow or so that we would have a bigger reward in heaven. The role of fruits here in Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount is that it will tell us what we're really made of. It will tell us if we're really following Christ, if we're really what we claim to be. The second test Jesus gives us is two trees and two fruits. We have looked at the test of two gates and two paths. We have looked at the test of two trees and two fruits. Let's look at the third test. And let me pause here for a moment. These are not like the test in college, where if you fail one test, you hope you'll do better on the next two, and that will even out. These are more like tests when you get diagnosed with cancer and you go for a second opinion. One test is enough to get some warning signs and see if there's something really needing our attention, our immediate attention. Let's look at the third test. Two builders and two houses. The third imagery Jesus gives is in the context of another very serious warning. And this warning is not like the previous warning. Jesus is not saying here, be aware of false prophets, which implied, be aware of others who falsely profess to be Christians. The third warning Jesus gives is not for others. The third warning Jesus gives is for you, my dear hearer, and for me. Let's look at the warning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's a pretty important warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's explain it. Let's, let's see what Jesus is teaching through this warning. He's saying that not everyone who acknowledges with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not enough to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It is not enough to acknowledge that Jesus is King. If the acknowledgement is only in our mind and does not involve our submission to His authority, and his kingship, our acknowledgement of his lordship is empty. Friends, according to these verses, the essential characteristic of a true believer is not his loud profession of faith, nor his spectacular spiritual experiences, not even his ability to make miracles, but a Christian's chief characteristic is his obedience. To the words of Jesus. No man enters the kingdom of heaven by his obedience. We want to make that very clear. No man enters the kingdom of heaven by or through his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom of heaven who is not obedient. Don Carson pointed out 
that it is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. That is why Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 6, says that he was calling people to the obedience that comes from faith. Faith and obedience, dear friends, are two sides of the same coin. You cannot claim you have faith in Christ without, being, without having the fruit of that faith, namely obedience to Christ. Now, let me give you an example. Today, very few places in the world still have kings and queens. One exception is the United Kingdom. The Queen of England is recognized and respected as a queen. And officially, theoretically, she has authority to rule the country and to rule the kingdom. But in reality, she does not exercise that authority at all. The English people are not considered her servants as it typically used to be the case a few centuries ago when kings had servants and everyone in the kingdom were subservient to that king. Queen Elizabeth does not demand the service and the absolute submission of her citizens. So such modern illustrations of kings and queens are very unhelpful for us spiritually. Jesus' lordship is not like the reign of, queen of, of the Queen of England. Friends, Jesus is not impressed by people who merely recognize and respect his lordship. He's not impressed by people who sing about his lordship. He's not impressed by people who, seem, who adore his lordship on Sunday mornings if his lordship has no meaning and authority over their lives in actual obedience to him. Monday through Saturday. Friends, there might be some of you here today who have a picture of Jesus much like we think of the Queen of England. We recognize Jesus' lordship. We respect him as king, but we are still going to govern our own lives. We don't consider Jesus having actual authority to get involved in our business, to tell us how to live how to engage in relationships, how to relate to co-workers, how to relate to his church, how to relate to our spouses, how to relate to our children. Friends, Jesus said very plainly, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. To declare Jesus as Lord means to submit to him and to do his Father's will. And Jesus gives us two pictures about what it means to do his Father's will. A picture of the final day of judgment. Look at verses 22 to 23. And then he's going to give us a picture of two builders and two homes in verses 24 to 27. Look at the first picture Jesus gives about what it means to call Christ Lord. On the final day of judgment, there will be people who will expect the Lord will receive him into his kingdom. These people thought they served God because they did all kinds of things in his name. And look at the impressive list of things they claim. They say they prophesied, they drove out demons, they performed many miracles in his name. Friends, this is an impressive list of things that some people will use to try to justify their entrance into heaven. Does your list compare to that? And yet Jesus calls them evildoers. And worse, Jesus says and will say to them, Depart from me. Depart from me. Friends, don't substitute service 
for obedience. Don't substitute service of God for obedience of God. Friends, don't substitute miraculous experiences for obedience. There are people today who would be so interested in, in pursuing just having miraculous experiences because that's what's fun today. And they're not pursuing with the same diligence the obedience that Jesus wants us to have for following him. So how can you be sure? How can I be sure? How can we be sure? If we show up on the day of judgment and find out that we have been self-deceived, it is going to be a little too late. Jesus gives another picture. Another picture for us here and now. How can we be sure now? And he gives the picture of two builders and two homes. And the pictures are for us. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Friends, this is the meaning of calling Jesus as Lord, to hear his decrees and put them into practice. And the alternative is given in verse 26. Jesus says, to hear his words but not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus compares these two alternatives with two builders who built two homes. Now, if we were visitors, if we were visiting this neighborhood, if we were visiting these two, two builders and the, the, the homes they built, we would probably be entering the same homes. They're probably similar homes. The text doesn't tell us. From the outside, they probably look the same. Yet, when the storms came, one home stood while the other crashed. Not because one home was built with better materials than the other. Not because one home was built by professional builders, whereas the other one may have been built by the guy himself and he didn't know what he was doing. No, that's not exactly right. One crashed because one was built on a different foundation than the other. And friends, here's a great warning. Don't be deceived by simply looking at what strikes the eye. When you go, when I go to examine one of those two homes, yes, they look the same. We, we, we check them out to see if we like how pleasant they are. But would you ever consider examining the foundation? We don't typically think of that. We don't typically think of how great the foundation of a house is. All we care about is, is the home pleasant? Is it homey? Is it roomy? Is it cozy? Friends, the only part of the house that we can't see is the foundation. And according to Jesus, that's what really matters. Friends, the only the storms of life will reveal truly on what foundation we have built. You may not be able to say it. You may not be able to examine it at first. You may not be able to say at which, on which foundation you have built unless the storms of life come. Many people today build their lives on their own dreams and aspirations or on their own abilities. But friends, unless your foundation is built on Jesus Christ, your edifice, your home will crash when the storm of life comes. But let me emphasize the warning Jesus gives. It's not enough simply to say, I'm building my house on Christ, and I shall be okay. We have that song that we'll be singing at the end of the service, my, my faith is built on nothing less. It's not enough simply to say, my, my home is built on Christ. I want to ask you, on what notion of Christ are you building your foundation? What notion of Jesus do you have? Do you mean that Christ has the same authority in your life as the Queen of England? Is that notion of Jesus that is the foundation of your life? Jesus says, that is sand. That is a sandy foundation. Even though, wordly, verbally, that we use the words of Jesus. Notice specifically what is the correct picture of Jesus we ought to have. 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. This is the only picture of Christ's lordship that has meaning and value. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount ends on a pretty negative picture. I don't know if you realize, but it ends with a picture of the house being built on sand. And when the storms of life come, the house falls with a great crash. That's how Jesus ends the sermon. A picture of a crashed home. Now, it's not popular today to end sermons in a negative tone. But because Jesus ended his sermon on the mount, on this picture of destruction, I will do the same. There are some of you who do not feel comfortable examining your faith. Someone may have taught you that you should never doubt your faith. Someone may have taught you that you should never examine if your faith is true or not. Friends, we have to examine our definition of lordship. We have to examine on which path we're on. We have to examine through which gate we entered. We have to examine what kind of fruits we're bearing and what, on what foundation we're building. Jesus is telling us that it's not enough to call ourselves Christians. It is not enough to call Jesus Lord. Friends, some of you this morning need to examine if you have been building your faith on Christ's true Lordship. If your fruits don't show it, if your life doesn't show it, do not be comfortable in your assurance. You should wake up from your spiritual sleep before you get to the day of judgment. Now, I'd like to leave you with the words of Spurgeon as he concluded a sermon on the need to examine our faith. Here are the words of Spurgeon, and they're a little long, but bear with me. He said, driving along the other day in the wind, I observed a large branch fall off a tree. I remarked that it was rotten and wondered within myself how long that might have been on the tree and yet have been rotten all along. Then I thought, oh, if the wind of persecution were to sweep through the church, would I fall off like a rotten branch? Wouldn't many of my congregation fall off? They have professed to be united to Christ for a long time and have spoken for Him, perhaps preached for Him. But if the time of trial which will test the earth should come on against again, how many of us would stand? Oh, my friends, don't be content to take your Christianity for granted. Let it not be a superficial work. Don't think that because you have seen me and have seen my elders and have admitted you into the church that you're there for a true Christian. We have been de deceived many times. I am certain I have used the utmost diligence to weed out of the church those whom I have suspected of hypocrisy, and greater diligence will yet be used. But, oh, do deal with yourselves, I beg you, I will not send you to hell blindfolded if I can help it. I don't wish to be in error myself, and God forbid that I should allow you to be deceived. Oh, if you are not a true Christian, away with your profession altogether. If it is not sound work, that down with it. Better to see the house tumble now then let it stand until the rain descends and the floods come and the winds beat on it in the dread of eternity of the future. Oh, no. I would rather send every heart home uncomfortable than let the hypocrites sit here and think all is well. I would rather wound the child of God than allow the hypocrite to escape. These words, the words of Spurgeon. Such was the way Spurgeon preached during times when God brought revival in England through his preaching. 
Such preaching may sound legalistic or harsh, but friends, Jesus ended his Sermon on the Mount with a serious warning. Three diagnosis tests, three pictures of opposite alternatives, a picture of a wide gate and a wide path, and a picture of a narrow gate with a narrow path, a picture of a good tree with good fruits, and a picture of bad tree with bad fruits, and a house built on a solid foundation and another house built on sand. Friend, examine yourself today to which of these opposite alternatives you belong. There is no middle path. There is no middle neutral tree. And there's no medium foundation. Let us pray. Father, this morning, at the end of this service, and at the end of listening and hearing to the Sermon on the Mount proclaimed to our ears, we pray. We pray that we would be wise men who would build our faith, our lives, on the Lordship of Jesus Christ as defined by Christ. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And if there's someone here today that after examining their hearts, examining their lives, they feel that they may have not been on the narrow path. They may have not brought forth a good fruit. They may have not built their home on the solid rock. Lord, I pray you would give them the courage to take this diagnosis seriously today and begin treating it. Lord, thank you that today is not too late to come to you. We thank you that today is not too late to turn back to you and begin following you in the way that you have designed for us. Father, this is our prayer for us, for all of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray.